Okay, open your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're going to read that in just a second. How do we know? How do we know that God exists? That's a big that's a big question. Better yet, even beyond how do we know that God exists, the question could arise, well, how do we actually know God? That is, how can we enter into relationship with him? Better still, in addition to the question of does God exist and how can we have a relationship with him, we could ask, uh, how can we be assured that we have spiritual life? These are really the big questions of life. Does God exist? How can we know him? How can we be made spiritually alive. What we're going to see in Psalm 19 this morning is that God actually has given us everything that we need to answer those questions. In his loving kindness, he has revealed his existence to us. Beyond revealing his existence, he's actually shown us how to have a relationship with him. Further still, he's revealed how we can be made spiritually alive and how we can live a blessed life in this world and in the next. It's this revelation that in Psalm 19, David celebrates. According to David here, the creator, God, is not only all-powerful and all-glorious, but is loving and merciful towards his creation. He's extended covenant love towards mankind, according to David, as we will see, seeking to usher him into loving relationship with himself. And so according to David, as we're going to see in Psalm 19, God has revealed to mankind everything they need in order to know his existence, have a relationship with him, have spiritual life, and spiritual joy. And so we're just going to look at a few things this morning in Psalm 19 under that heading of God's kindness through revelation. God's kindness through revelation. And so let's look at Psalm 19 together. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping of them there is great reward." Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so first and foremost, under that heading of God's kindness through revelation, we notice that David praises the Lord for his revelation 
to man, focusing on God's kindness through his general revelation in creation. His general revelation in creation. Look at verse 1. David simply says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I say that's God's general revelation. That is God making himself known to everyone equally. He's filled creation with testimony to his power and to his order and to his design. So much so that any objective observer can come to the conclusion that there is a good and wise and intelligent and almighty creator who has made and sustains it all. I mean, that's any objective observer should ought to be able to just look outside, look up into the sky and come to that conclusion. And so David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so it's as if all of creation is a preacher declaring that God is and that he exists. And so how do you know that God exists? Well, just look up. He hasn't left himself without a witness. The sky, the heavens, space, all the cosmic bodies, all of this declare God and his glory. And you know, as a Christian, if you're a nature lover, that a simple walk in the park or a hiking trail can lead you to worship. How? Not because you're worshiping creation, but because you're put in awe at the intelligent design of your creator. We went to the zoo when we were on vacation, and it just struck me as we're going around from exhibit to exhibit. Actually, this happened while I was watching the otters. Otters are adorable little creatures, and they just swim, and they're very playful, and they're playing with kids at the glass and so on. I thought, well, how remarkable is it? You know, we have art galleries where we put on display our artwork, and we walk around, and we look at that, and we just observe and say, oh, what, what a creative masterpiece. And there must be a wonderful master behind this painting or this sculpture. Do we do the same thing with God? Well, yeah, it's called a zoo. You go from exhibit to exhibit, and you see this amazing creature, and you're in awe of it. And even the staunchest atheist doesn't even know what he's doing. But he's looking at this thing saying, what amazing design. What an amazing creature. And we just go and uh, look at all that God has made, and we stand in awe and wonder. And that's the purpose of why there's such diversity and such amazing design in all of creation. And David says, it all proclaims that God is. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It pours out speech, relentless, consistent, like an onslaught of revelation. All of creation says that God is. The rotation of the earth, the orbit of the moon, the cycle of days and seasons. All of this remains an ever-present witness to the existence and glory of God. Like a, again, relentless onslaught of revelation. Every day the sun rises and says God exists. The sun sets and says, God exists. The thunderstorm rolls in and says, God exists. The sky darkens, the stars come into focus, testifying again, God exists. Every morning, every night, day after day, week after week, month after month, season after season, it never stops. Every day, it's relentless, it's in the view of every human being, and so that revelation is there proving that God is. And it's universal. A little bit of science for you. In a minute, David's going to focus on the sun. We're told that our sun is really just an average-sized star. Yet the sun's diameter is about 109 times that of the earth. The sun weighs about 333,000 times as much as earth. It's so large that about 1.3 million planet earths can fit into our sun. And we're told that our Earth, actually, is just about the size of an average sunspot. 
The size of the Milky Way galaxy is equivalent to the size of about 1.5 billion of our suns. It's estimated to contain 100 to 400 billion other stars and at least that number of planets. It takes 100,000 years for light to travel from one end of just our galaxy to the other end of our galaxy. And our galaxy is certainly not the biggest. Our closest neighbor is more than twice the distance across at 220,000 light years. One galaxy is known to be 4 million light years across. And NASA now estimates that there's about 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. And as our, as our uh, technology increases and we can see more of the universe, that number just keeps going up and up and up and up. In fact, under, under Hubble's reign, that number was about uh, uh, much lower. But uh, since the James Webb telescope is operational, that number just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And so two trillion galaxies each potentially containing 400 billion stars and being at least hundreds of thousands of light years across. You say the immensity. And others say, oh, there's got to be life out there. There's got to be other life. Otherwise, you know, why would all this be if there's no other? And you say, this is just God saying, I'm here. It all testifies to the reality of God. It's no wonder that David in Psalm 8 would say, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Number one, God exists. And number two, wow, we're puny. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens again, according to David, declare the glory of God. This is a perpetual revelation. It just doesn't stop. It's continual and it's universal. Everyone has access to that revelation. So verse 3 of Psalm 19 goes on. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. That is, the heavens declare not verbally, but still, even without a voice, it still has a voice. It still preaches. And to whom? Well, to the ends of the world. Although creation doesn't literally speak, it does proclaim. It does declare. And so, this is a universal testimony of the revelation of God's existence. And notice next, it says that he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Just a couple of analogies. He's saying just like a bridegroom comes up all dressed up uh, and uh, comes onto the scene after being anticipated, so too the sun just comes out uh, like coming out of a chamber, like a champion. Uh, like an athlete who's just on the top of his game, doing exactly what he has trained and has been designed to do, uh, so too the sun uh, fulfills its course that God has designed it to fulfill. Look at verse 6. Speaking of the sun, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing is outside the reach of the revelation of creation. Nothing is hidden from its heat, and so no one can say, well, I didn't know. In fact, Paul makes that application in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, how? Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. And so the first revelation, the general revelation through creation, is enough so that God can say, All men are culpable for their rejection of me, because they have enough. Just look up. 
It's no wonder that Romans goes on to talk about the fact that mankind suppresses the truth and righteousness. And we cannot muzzle the message of creation because nothing is from outside the reach of this creative testimony of God's existence. So what we do is we simply try to reinterpret. And so our culture has gone to great lengths and great degrees to try to re-explain the existence of creation because creation is just that uh, loud, continual, perpetual, and universal testimony to the existence of a creator. Well, David moves on from the general revelation through creation. And that is enough, but he moves on to show that in God's kindness, he has given us even further revelation. And I want you to notice a shift that happens here in Psalm 19 uh, when we move on uh, to verse 7. There's a change of tone in language here. In fact, there's such a shift in Psalm 19 at this point that some have surmised that this originally was actually two different psalms. I don't think that's necessary. I think the logical flow makes all sorts of sense here. But there is definitely a marked change. What David does here is he moves on from showing God's kindness through his general revelation in creation, and he begins to show us God's kindness through his special revelation in his word. Now look in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 9, and verse 14. 7, 8, 9, and 14. And this is why it's helpful when you come to Calvary to actually have your paper Bible so you can look at it, right? But look at 7, 8, 9, and 14. What do you notice repeated there? It's a name for God. What is it? Lord. Yahweh. That name for God is not found in the first six verses. In fact, in the first six verses, there's only one mention of God, and it's the generic term, just El, God. But verse 7, 8, 9, and 14 says, Lord, Yahweh. What is David doing? He's showing us that through general revelation, we can come to know that God is. But really not much more than that. He is good. He is powerful. Uh, sure, we can, we can know that from creation. But we can't go much further than that. But God in his kindness has given us further revelation so that we can actually come to know him as the personal covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. And so David shifts here and begins to speak of his Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. That's not incidental. This is the God who makes covenant. This is the God who promises to be the personal God to his people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. He promises relationship, and he promises blessing. He promises to never leave and never forsake those who love him. He's entirely faithful and committed to fulfill his covenant commitments. That's the God that David now focuses on. And he shows us that God has given us revelation so that we can know him as that God. And so the first witness of creation doesn't give us this information. How does one come to know God as the faithful, loving, covenant-making, and covenant-keeping God? Well, look what David says in verse 7 through 9. It's not the revelation of creation. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true. That's the word of God. David says there's a further revelation that God in his kindness has given to mankind. Not only creation but his word. God's kindness through the special revelation in his word. From the created world to the written word. God has provided an awesome source of self-revelation in the Bible. For those who see the reality of God's wisdom and power and goodness in creation, he says, here's even more light. This morning, are you convinced that God exists? That everything that exists is not here by chance or accident? 
Have you received the revelation which all of creation proclaims? Well, it's as if God then says, well, now come and learn more. Open the word of God. Read my self-disclosure. Open the pages of scripture to learn just who this God is who made you. Learn in the Bible who he is and who you are and what he expects of you and how you can have a relationship with him. And so now David goes on to give six characteristics of the word of God. We're going to go through these relatively quickly. David, first of all, says of the word of God, this self-disclosure through the written word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Perfect. The scriptures are entirely sufficient to accomplish all that God has designed them to accomplish. It doesn't fall short in any intended purpose in any way. So what's the purpose of the scriptures? Well, David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. God has designed his word to bring spiritual life. The word reviving there can bring the idea of turning away from God or turning to God. Obviously, in this context, it's the idea of turning to God. The point is, the word of God designed by the Lord for the purpose of men and women turning to him and coming to him for relationship, and it perfectly fulfills that role. The scriptures reveal that God is holy, that man is sinful, that God in his justice must judge all sin, that he's provided deliverance from sin and judgment through his Son, and that faith in Christ brings salvation. All of that is in the word of God. All of that is used by the Lord to bring men and women to himself. 1 Peter 1.23 says that we've been born again, not by perishable seed, but imperishable by the word of God that lives and abides forever. Romans 10.17 obviously says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God's means to revive the soul speaks of repentance, a turning back, sure. James tells us that the word of God is like a mirror, exposes who we are. And after seeing ourselves through the mirror of his word, we're obligated to deal with what God has exposed. The writer of Hebrews speaks of the word of God as a sharp living sword that's able to discern even the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that deep penetrating effect of the word of God. And it's through that type of exposure that leads to repentance and turning to the Lord. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that's in the context of speaking of the word of God. In addition to this, it's the word of God that sustains our spiritual life so that Jesus could say that man should not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's for this reason that Peter could say that we ought to desire the word like a newborn desires milk. The word of God is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's a supernatural book that does a supernatural work in your heart and mind according to God's design. Next, David says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Sure and stable. Trustworthy. You can place your trust in the Scriptures without fear uh, of disappointment or harm. Sure and stable. It's a foundation you can build your life upon. And note what it says, Because the word of the Lord is sure, it has the power to make wise the simple. Is that your experience? There are some areas in your life that you can say, prior to salvation, I was quite simple and ignorant. Now that I've been saved and exposed to the word of God, I've learned some things. I think so. Before we were Christians, before we accepted the word of the Lord as stable and sufficient, we really lived our own way. 
We had our own values, our own philosophies, our own ideas. Our life choices might not have been the best. Our choice of boyfriend might not have been the best. Our choice of girlfriend might not have been the best. Our relationship choices might not have been great, and we suffered for it. You experienced the natural consequences of your poor choices. Maybe in your work life, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, any number of these areas, you can say, I made a real mess of my life. But then you came to Christ, and coming to Jesus does not change all of that instantly. Oh, now I'm a Christian, so it's all, no, you've got baggage. Your mind is still wired the way it once was. And so there's a sanctification process that must, much, must take place. But how does it take place? By God applying his word to your heart and your mind. Reforming your values, reforming your priorities. And so you've experienced this. Through his word, you've learned wisdom. You learned what type of life choices lead to blessing which have led to turmoil. And sometimes you see a young Christian come to the faith, and they've made some bad choices prior to salvation. They get saved, and they still haven't learned a whole lot, so they're still making bad choices. That's where the rest of us who might be a little bit more mature in the faith are here, right, to come along and say, let me help you see in the Word of God uh, how you can make wiser choices, right? And that's your responsibility and my responsibility. But we learn better how to relate to others through the word, how to handle challenges and disappointments in life in a healthy way. We learn how to be a godly husband, how to be a godly wife. We learn how to model the character of God in our parenting, and so on, and so on, and so on. Through the word of God, the simple are made wise. It's this power in the word which enables families to be turned around. Are you one of those families where maybe your parents were a mess, unbelievers, and it showed... You've come to the faith and you've sought to raise up children in a way that glorify God so that you have broken the generational cycle, how not in your own power, but by the wisdom and instruction you receive from the Word of God. The Word of God makes the simple wise. The Word of God is stable and it's a secure foundation upon which we can build our lives and character, David says. Next of all, he says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Not only is the word of God, has God's revelation to us sufficient to bring spiritual life and to make the simple wise, but David says it is right and brings joy. It's right. God's standard of righteousness is contained in his word. Regardless of what the culture around us says, regardless of the fact that the culture has adopted a different standard of right and wrong. By the way, not only has the culture developed a different standard of right and wrong, but our culture is preaching that standard, and our culture is seeking to indoctrinate according to that standard, and our culture is seeking to make you feel as if you are immoral if you don't receive their standard of right and wrong. But the Word of God is the source of what is right, and what? Embracing and understanding God's standard of righteousness as found in the word of God results in what? What does David say? Joy, rejoicing the heart. Whereas our world tells us that true happiness comes from looking inside and being true to ourselves as the greatest moral good. God says we must look outward, look to the word. Whereas the culture in all of its post-modernity says that you can invent your own reality and your own truth and even your own identity. 
And so you can walk in this life really existing in your own sphere of reality, and the person next to you can do the same thing. And the greatest immorality is for anybody to come along and to pop your bubble and to hold you to account to some grand narrative of truth. God says, no, look outside of yourself and allow the Word of God to penetrate and to expose who you really are and who you ought to be according to God's standard. The precepts of the Lord are right, and embracing those results in joy. And it's no surprise, because the author of Scripture is the author of life. And so the Word of God stands as the standard by which we can uh, live a blessed life in this world. He knows what brings true happiness and what brings false happiness. And so when we receive the Word of God as it is, the very revelation from God himself, we find joy. And that joy really emanates from a good conscience as we begin to live according to his standard of right. Through the Word of God, we're led to learn more about our Lord. We're led to confess sin, which displeases Him. We are instructed to live lives, which lead to blessing. Through the reading and application of God's Word, our hearts rejoice. We learn to find joy in the things of God and develop an ever-increasing distaste for the world and its false righteousness. Next, not only is the Word of God perfectly sufficient to bring spiritual life and inalterably stable so that we can build our lives upon it and thoroughly righteous so that it brings genuine joy, but David continues, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Could it be said of you that prior to coming to Jesus, you lived a life of impurity? Sexual impurity, moral impurity, filth, You know that such impurity is enslaving, even addictive. And you know the life that you once lived in that filth and that impurity, you could say, was a life of darkness. You know that that life, which promised joy, actually brought sadness. What promised life actually brought death. The Word of God, on the other hand, is the paradigm of purity. As we immerse ourselves in the word, we develop a distaste for our former lives. We emerge from the darkness into light. We emerge from our former sin, like a prisoner emerging from a dark cell and being struck by the brightness of the sun for the first time. We who are saved have emerged from the darkness and dominion of sin into the glorious light of Christ. How? We experience that through the word of God. Our eyes have been enlightened and are continually enlightened as we are exposed to the purity of God's word. What was once celebrated in our lives is now seen as filthy. What we once accepted, we now reject. On the other hand, what we once viewed as foolish and stifling, we now see as the source of joy and freedom. This happens progressively in our lives as we read and apply the word. And this is why Paul in Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That is, apply the word of God as the source of that purity and allow it to cleanse your mind. Some of you this morning are Christians, but you're still struggling with impure thoughts. Sexual impurity or just anger, bitterness, resentment, whatever it is, and you struggle with those thoughts and it's a continual uh, bother in your life, apply the means of God. I mean, apply the means of grace. Are you in the Word? Are you reading? Are you studying? Are you meditating? Are you memorizing? Are you exposing yourself to good teaching? Are you doing that during the week? Are you giving yourself, immersing yourself in the Scripture? The commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightens the eyes. 
We could summarize all that simply saying, immerse yourself in the Word. Fill your mind with Scripture. And again, the uh, analogy I often like to use is the idea of our mind being like a warehouse or a storehouse. And there's shelves that are nearby, and there's shelves that are in the back. When you go to the store and say, well, do you have any more of that in the back? Well, uh, we got some things in the back, we got some things in the, in the forefront. And uh, our responsibility is to be so immersed in the Word of God that those shelves up front are just stacked full of what is pure and what is commendable and what is righteous and so on. By the way, men, can we just get a really direct right now? Men, if you're struggling with lust, and you're walking down the street, and you're checking out women, and you're scrolling, and you're looking with lust, you know what you're doing? You're just stacking those shelves right here full of filth. And so that's always right there ready to jump into your mind at any given moment. If that's your struggle, you know what you do? First of all, you stop stocking those shelves, but you replace. You get in the Word of God, and you read, and you study, and you memorize, and you meditate, and you just stock those shelves with what is pure, and what is holy, and what is commendable, and so on. So that uh, when those temptations come, well, you know what's closest to mind? The Word of God, right? Listen, God's means are practical. Put them to use. Psalm 119.11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And and that's not just a vain prayer. And and here's the thing. If you're struggling with impurity or uh, sensuality or pornography or something like this, you might cry out verse 10. Put verse 10 up there. Come on, verse 10. Family feud. Survey says... With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander. You might cry that out. But if you don't follow that cry with what we see in verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's not a vain cry. If you're struggling with sin in your life and you're crying out, uh, I want to seek you, Lord. Okay. Put legs to your prayers. Use God's means. Store up his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. And so do you feel trapped in the dingy, dirty darkness of sin? Well, lean to feast on the purity, learn to feast on the purity of God's word. The scales of that darkness fall off as you learn to reject sin and love purity. Your eyes are enlightened. And so not only is the word of God perfectly sufficient to bring us spiritual life and inalterably stable so that we can build our lives upon it, and so thoroughly righteous that living by it brings genuine joy, and such a source of purity that it cleanses our minds and changes our outlook. But David continues, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And this is that fear of the Lord that all of Scripture testifies we ought to uh, live in, that reverential fear of God that leads us to forever live with an awareness of His will for us and a conscience towards God and desire to live for Him. Because that fear is clean. That is, it's whole and healthy and pure, and what it endures forever. Although we're tempted to value and pursue the transitory things of this life, the temporary and vain and passing things, it's what's done in the fear of the Lord that endures forever. The Word of God leads us into such a life. Lastly, David gives us one more all-encompassing characteristic of this revelation in the written Word. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. It's the source of truth. This is simple. It's the source of truth. The entire body of God's written revelation is righteous. Not one iota is to be rejected or denied. 
Unlike other doctrines or philosophies that are intermingled with truth and error, we can say that the written word is righteous altogether. The entire thing is true, not mixed with error. And so it should be trusted. So what have we learned? God in his kindness has given mankind clear revelation regarding his existence in creation. That revelation itself renders all men culpable, and it's perpetual, always preaching, and is universal. No one is outside of its reach. Next, not only has God in his kindness revealed his existence to man through creation, but he has revealed his loving, covenant-keeping character through the written word. It's through this special revelation that God not only informs us about himself, but actually transforms us. And so what should our response be to all of this? Well, we see David's response in verse 10. He responds to this exalted representation of the word of God by saying, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. It is prioritize the word. Prioritize the word. Desire the word more than you desire any possession, more than even gold. Desire the word more than you desire any experience, sweeter even than the honey or the drippings of the honeycomb. Then David says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Take heed to the word. In keeping them, there is great reward. Obey the word. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What is that? Well, submit to the word. Allow the word to penetrate. Allow the word to expose your hidden faults. Allow the word to show you who you really are, and then respond to that revelation that exposure who can discern his errors declare me from innocent declare me innocent from hidden faults keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins that sounds a lot like lead us not into temptation doesn't it keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and we've already seen psalm 119 verse 9 through 11 uh, the meditation and memorization of the word helps us with that let them not have dominion over me then i shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression then David says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's saying, conform me to your word. Conform me to your word. I want it to so penetrate me that the very words that come out of my mouth reflect the truth of your word. I want the meditation of my heart, not to be impurity, but I want the meditation of my heart to be that which is acceptable to you. Use your word to reshape and transform me. That's Paul of Romans 12, isn't it? Tells us not to be conformed to this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which happens through the word. Prioritize the word, obey the word, submit to the word, conform to the word. That's the right response. And you say, wow, he did all that in 34 minutes. We're done. That's a three-point sermon. Because God has given us general revelation through, his, through creation, and he's given us special revelation in his word. But listen, we're Christians this morning. At this point, any rabbi could say amen to that sermon. God did not stop at the revelation of creation and the revelation through his written word. But God has given us a final revelation in his son, a final revelation in his son. God's full and final revelation of who he is and how to have a relationship with him has been given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God spoke to us in times past in many different ways. Creation, even through the prophets. But now we say, we are post-cross. We recognize that God's full and final revelation has come through His Son. Whereas we learn that the heavens declare the glory of God, we learn in Hebrews here that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Not only this, but it's Jesus himself, according to the writer of Hebrews, who's actually upholding all of creation. Jesus is the one who holds up heavens and sustains the sky above. The glory which the heavens declare pales in comparison to the glory which Jesus bears. The created order gives a sense of the glory of God, but Jesus is the very radiance of the glory so that he could say to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. So if mankind is culpable for the revelation he receives from the created order, how much the more are we culpable for the revelation we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ? If we're responsible for rejection of the glory of God seen in creation, how much the more are we guilty for rejecting the glory of Jesus? When Paul was in Athens, and he was moved, I mean, the whole city, I mean, it's just idolatrous. And, and idolatry generally goes hand in hand with immorality. And so he sees all the idolatry of Athens, and this is a pagan culture. They don't have the Jewish scriptures. They don't have the Jewish background. So what Paul does is he begins to preach at the Areopagus as he appeals to that first revelation through creation. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That is, we want to worship all the gods, and if we've missed any, let's have an altar for the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And now he speaks of the revelation through creation. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, And again, what Paul is doing is he's preaching from that first revelation. He's not appealing to Jewish scriptures. In fact, what he's doing is he's appealing to that revelation through creation and even quoting one of their own poets. But he doesn't stop there. Paul then escalates matters. And he says, the first revelation through creation. But now look what he says in verse 30 of Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, God allowed the pagan nations to live under that first revelation of creation for a time. And he was very merciful, but something has changed. So that now he demands that all men everywhere repent. What is it? Verse 31, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What he's saying is that just as all have the revelation through creation, the greatest and the perfect revelation has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now all men must repent. 
There's no greater revelation. You have it all. And so now all men must repent. Not only is God's final revelation through his son greater than the testimony of the created order, but in fact through his incarnation, Jesus actually became the living embodiment of God's word and all of its benefits. So everything David said about the word and all those benefits of the word are found in perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did David say? The law of the Lord is perfect, bringing spiritual life. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What did David say? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Well, Jesus was perfectly pure, and he is the true light, which enlightens everyone. He said, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What did David say? The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Well, Jesus is the righteous one who is the way, the truth, and the life. David said the testimony of the Lord is sure or stable. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man, a wise man who built his house on a rock. Sure and stable. David said that the word makes the simple wise. We learn from Paul that Jesus has become to us wisdom from God. David said that the precepts of the Lord bring joy to the heart. Jesus said that if we keep his commandments, he will give us fullness of joy. There's more. David said, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Jesus said, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. David said that the word is to be desired more than fine gold. We're told that those who follow Jesus must value him, like a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price. David said that in keeping God's law, there is great reward. Jesus said that those who follow him will be rewarded when he returns. In response to God's word, David longed to be declared innocent from hidden faults, and yet all who believe in Jesus will be declared righteous for his sake. David asked to be freed from the dominion of sin. Those who believe in Jesus are told that sin will not have dominion over us. David longed to be blameless and innocent. We're told that through Jesus, we will be found holy and blameless and above reproach before God at his coming. Lastly, David trusted in the Lord as his rock and his redeemer. In the New Testament, we learn that the rock was Christ, and he is the redeemer who gave himself to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus Christ is God's full and final revelation given to us in his kindness, the loving kindness of our Savior. In the person of Jesus Christ, the witness of creation and the witness of the law come together. The witness of the word and the witness of the uh, world are joined. The glory which was declared by the heavens, the glory which was revealed by Scripture, are seen in him in perfection. So that John in John chapter 1 could say, the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in God's loving kindness, he's given us revelation concerning himself. Revelation which came to a climax in the person of Jesus Christ. Prior to Jesus, the invisible things of God were manifest through the created order, but in the incarnation, God himself stepped into the created order. The Word became flesh. Prior to Jesus, the Word testified of God's character. Through Jesus, men came face to face with God and experienced his character. Through Jesus, we learn who God is, who we are, what God expects of us, and how we can be saved, and this is the kindness of God. So in conclusion... 
God in his kindness has revealed himself to man first through general revelation and creation. The perpetual universal revelation which renders all men without excuse for the rejection of God as creator. Next, he's revealed himself through the special revelation in his word. Beyond the basics of God's existence as creator, we learn his love and his mercy and his grace and his holiness, his covenant-keeping nature, and so man is doubly culpable. And finally, in God's kindness, he revealed himself to us through the final revelation of his son. Now, the destiny of all men is determined by what they do with Jesus. So at the beginning, we asked, how can we know that God exists? And we say, well, better yet, how can we know God? Beyond that, how can we have relationship with him? Better still, how can we know that God exists and have a relationship with him and be assured of spiritual life? How can we know that God exists? Well, creation screams, good, wise, powerful creator. Our very existence is an ever-present testimony to that. The cosmos relentlessly pours forth the declaration of God's existence. But how can we know God personally? Well, through his word. More than this, let's say it this way. How can we know God personally and have spiritual life? Well, through his word. What we learn in the New Testament is both creation and the word testify to Jesus. Jesus said to Jews in John 5.39, those unbelieving Jews, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. You refuse, you refuse to come that you may have life. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus finds those morose, depressed disciples after his crucifixion, he says to them, he opens up the word of God, and the Bible says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures of things concerning himself. So creation testifies to Jesus. The word testifies to Jesus. Jesus then steps into his own creation as the word. And so all of our big questions of life are answered in him. He's the source of spiritual life. He's the source of relationship with the Father. He's the way that we can come to know our creator. And so we come back to Psalm chapter 19, and we look once again at David's response in the very last verse in verse 14. He responds to all of this, all this exalted thought of creation in the word. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Having now gone to the New Testament and considered full revelation, we can come back to verse 14, and we could actually say this verse word for word. But having full revelation, we understand that in doing so, we are exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Well, who's the Lord? That's Christ. My rock? Well, who's the rock? The rock is Christ. And my Redeemer? Who's the Redeemer? Jesus Christ. He's the full and final revelation from God. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, all of creation testifies that God is real, that he exists and that he made you. Beyond that, you say, well, I believe it. I believe there's a creator. Okay, good. You've responded to God's first witness. Now open the word of God so you can see who this God is. And ultimately, as you open the word of God to see who this God is, you're going to find that it all points to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those big answers of life, eternal life, salvation, who God is, relationship with him, who you are, how you can be saved. It's in the word. and It all comes to a culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you receive him as your Savior and Lord this morning? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for full revelation and your kindness. 
We're not deists. We understand that not only are you creator, but you are the personal God who designed us for relationship with yourself. You are a covenant-keeping God who binds yourself to promises to bless. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and revelation, giving us everything we need to answer the big questions of life. And we thank you ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does creation testify of Christ, but Jesus, we're told, is the creator. And it's through your son that you made the worlds. We recognize the first witness of creation points to Jesus. Next, you've given us your word. We're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the second testimony of scripture points to Jesus. And we understand that as Jesus walked this earth, it could be said that he was the radiance of your glory. And that to see him was to see you. That we are to honor him just as we honor you. Lord, we see all of this wrapped up in your son. So this morning we exalt Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you that through him you have brought us to yourself. And we pray this morning for those who are not yet saved. We pray that they'd come to Jesus. Understanding that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that it's through him where salvation is found through him that we can have a relationship with you and learn more about who you are, what you expect of us, and how we can live a blessed life in this world. Lord, we thank you for all of this in his name. Amen.